Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm your host, Mandy Johnston, and we have another very interesting show and more great guests for you today. Now, of late, you might have noticed a slight change in the type of ads that are coming to you on your mobile phone through Facebook. So today we're going to look at how Facebook is now using AI to perfect its advertising that's uniquely designed for you. And later on in the show, we'll be joined by Connor Pope, who's discussing online fraud, and he'll be giving us his top tips on how to avoid falling victim to scamfluencers. And finally, we'll have a discussion on wind farms and renewable energy. As Bob Dylan famously sang, you don't need a weatherman to see the way the wind blows, but you certainly need lots of investment and lots of engineering to capture and use it for your energy. So I'll be shooting the breeze on this topic with Lorcan Allen of the Sunday Business Post. Now, we always love hearing from you and you can get in touch with us on takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. Last week, we had a lot of contact from listeners talking about our discussion on Fox News and the defamation saga, particularly liking the conversation with Jeremy Peters of the New York Times. So that certainly will be something we'll be coming back to in the future. But first up today, let's start with that issue of online fraud. Online fraudsters are coming up with more and more sophisticated ways to steal our personal information, more importantly, target our money. From phishing scams to fake social media influencers, it's more important than ever that we're all vigilant and more important that we know actually how we protect ourselves. So here to help you to watch out for the signs and to make sure you're not the next victim, I'm joined now by Connor Pope, who's recently been looking into this issue for the Irish Times. Connor, thanks for joining us today. No problem at all, Mandy. Now, the scale of this is increasing all the time. Uh, I was struck by that piece you wrote. Uh, who actually monitors this? And, and do we have any idea of how much fraud, fraudsters actually managed to steal in any one year as a benchmark to start us off on the conversation today? Well, yes and no is the unhelpful answer to that question, because we have some official data from the Banking and Payments Federation, which which would suggest that you're talking about tens of millions of euro is routinely lost by Irish consumers every single year in in frauds and scams. But the reality is we don't have the true picture, because an awful lot of people who fall victim to scams are simply too embarrassed to tell anybody about it. And as a result, they don't tell anybody about it. They don't tell the authorities, they don't tell their banks. So it means that some people um, are very upfront and they will say, listen, I've lost money as a result of this particular scam. And then other people just will keep it to themselves. So we would have a benchmark figure in Ireland of around 50 million euro a year. But globally, it's worth billions of euro every single year. And in Ireland, it's probably worth substantially more than 50 million. So you're not talking about a small operation here. You're talking about big time, serious criminals exercising huge amounts of stealth to try and take our money. Mm. And everyone has their own sort of tale of woe about this, but it's getting much more sophisticated and harder for us to discern what is uh, a scam and what isn't. Uh, You wrote recently about a gentleman called Peter who had his own individual experience through Revolut. Do you want to just give us a quick overview of of what happened there? You know, that was a particularly sinister thing. Mm. So basically this chap called Peter, now that's not his real name, But he was sitting at home one evening last November when he got a message through his Revolut app saying that somebody had tried to make a purchase uh, in the John Lewis shop in the UK, in a John Lewis shop in the UK, and and, and the Revolut app was asking if that was him. So he said, no, it wasn't him. And then he went on to the Revolut live chat 
and he started telling them that there'd been a fraud attempt on his account and the chat went on and on and on and there was a lot of different overbacks. And while the chat was happening, he got a phone call from the criminals telling him that they knew that he was on the live chat and this is what he needed to do to protect his account. Um, and he did whatever they asked him to do. He followed certain links. And when he did that, they started draining the money from his account. And he could see it happening in real time. 200 euros being taken here, 200 euros being taken there. And he was telling the people on Revolut that the money was leaving his account. And still, uh, nothing was done. The account wasn't frozen. And he ended up losing the gut to 4,000 euros. Now, following the intervention of the Irish Times, he managed to get him his money back because Revolut accepted that it hadn't done what it needed to do in that instance. But that's just one example of somebody losing money. And in the vast, vast, vast majority of cases, when that happens, they simply don't get their money back. Because, And it's nothing to do with Revolut. It's the same with all the banks in this country and all the banks pretty much all over the world. If you are convinced by a criminal to give away personal data by following a link, or if you're convinced by a criminal to give them access to your computer or to your telephone by following a link, and they drain your account... Well, then pretty much the response from all banks is, well, that's on you Mm. because you shouldn't have given them access to your account or you shouldn't have given them your personal details. And that's what makes the criminal enterprise so sinister, because ultimately we don't have the kinds of protections that we think we might have. Because if I buy something online and it's not delivered, I can get my money back. Or if I buy something off a company and the company goes, goes bust, I can get my money back. But if I give my financial details to a criminal and the criminal takes all my money, it's game over for me and I can't get my money back. Yeah, and it is that the lack of safeguards, which uh, I suppose it frightens so many people because if you're handing handing this over, uh, you don't have the comeback, um, as you say there. It is sinister, but it's it's getting much more sophisticated. Something very similar to what happened, Peter, actually happened to me a couple of weeks ago. I won't name the provider, but I was contacted by phone um, and asked to, to hit six to, to return a call. So before I knew it, this gentleman was asking me to have my photograph taken and sent to him in a similar way uh, to what happened, Peter. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it is just very easy to get caught up in it without actually stopping and thinking. So, Connor, when you're looking at this, you kind of bundle these into to different ways that we can identify different scams. So just kind of give us an overview of the types of scams that people should look after, uh, look out for now. Well, I suppose the really common ones are the smishing scam where you get a text message purported to be from your bank or purported to be from on post or the credit union or whoever it might be saying, you know, the, you know does a customs charge due on a delivery or, you know, can you authorise this transaction and you follow a link. And then you follow the link and you you get onto a page that looks like it's from your bank or looks like it's from the post office or whoever, and you enter some personal details. Um, and of course, the, the, the web page is bogus. The link is bogus. Um, that's one type of scam. Another type of scam is you'll get an email from a company saying that they're, they're looking for information to follow a link and the link takes you again to a legitimate looking page. The invoice scam is really popular and that sees a business targeted and they will be contacted from a company that they do business with mm. to say, listen, we've changed our bank details, don't need to do anything now, but here's our new bank details, can you please input your systems? Uh, and then they won't, that'll be the end of it. And then two or three weeks or six months will pass, and the company that you are doing business with will send you an invoice. You have the new bank details on your system, so you pay into the new bank, but of course the, the, the criminals are the ones who have control of that particular bank account. That's known as the invoice scam. The romance scams are very common, where it, and that sees vulnerable individuals targeted on social media platforms 
by people who pretend to be romantic love interests and they string them along for weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months and months and then eventually they make their move and they start asking for money and then of course once the money is paid out they disappear. Those romance scams are incredibly popular uh, in Ireland um, and in fact a lot of the time they are being perpetrated they are being perpetrated by criminals based in this country um, and and they are particularly sinister because not only are they stealing your money they're also breaking your heart. They're very common scams and then you have the old-fashioned, nonsensical uh, cryptocurrency scams that you see on various different social media platforms are indeed uh, uh, social media ads from companies claiming to sell you X, Y, and Z. And when you buy the product, the product doesn't exist. And I think one of the interesting things is how much better the criminals have got in recent times. Because a lot of your listeners will be very familiar with the old school, uh, what used to be known as the 419 scam. Where basically you get an email purported to be from the daughter of a sub-Saharan prince and uh, they've got a suitcase full of blood diamonds that they want to give you, and you just have to give them your bank details. And the, me- the emails tend to be subletters and absolutely farcical. Um, and those are the kind of scams that started doing, started doing the rounds years ago when the internet became a big thing in Ireland. And one of the reasons, interestingly, why those scams are so illiterate and so over the top and so unbelievable is the criminals did that on purpose because they wanted to weed out all but the most susceptible people. So they wanted to weed out the 99.9% of people who would read an email like that and say, well, that's just nonsense. And they wanted to only capture the 0.1% who might believe it. So those scams weren't illiterate by accident. It was intentional. Mm. Uh, But the scams had become much more sophisticated. And as I say, the SMS messages, the emails, uh, the, the, the phone calls from the claim to be from the, the department of the or the claim to be from the attorney general or the guards or revenue and that you know they, they've detected fraud on your account or they've detected that your bank account might be used for money laundering and they're all you know they're, 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 they're on one level they're kind of completely unbelievable and then on another level you think well I could be caught out and actually there have been times when I've nearly been caught out in scams and I got a, I got a scam message once not long ago from a company claiming to be or from a person claiming to be from Netflix mm. and they told me that my account had been suspended and of course it's a Tuesday night and you don't want your account to be suspended so you go oh my god better better follow that link and then you hang up you stop and you say hang on a second that's not going to work because I, 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 I'm guessing one of your next questions might be how do you avoid being cut out of the scam and, 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 and I, that's a question that a lot of people ask and unfortunately the answer to that question is you have to be incredibly suspicious of all communication that you get. And you have to be incredi- incredibly cynical. And you have to remember that no company ever will send you a text message or send you an email with a link looking for financial details from you. No reputable company will ever do that. And if any message comes, comes your way looking for personal details like that or looking for financial details from following a link, you can rest assured that it's a scam. Mm. If you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Conor Pope of the Irish Times about online scams. That's really good advice that you've just given there about what, what to watch out for. And and just you were talking there, Conor, about you know who people target. I noticed that the demographic of people who are now falling for these scams is, is slightly changing. We, we would have had it in our mind, I suppose, that elderly people or the older demographic might be more vulnerable online. But that's changing, isn't it? Under 45s are the ones that people are are targeting more now. That's absolutely right. And according to a survey from Permanent TSB that was published just before Christmas, the under 45s are far, are more likely to, be, to to fall victim to scam. And there's probably a reason for that. In that, older people 
tend to be more suspicious of technology and they tend to be less likely to exchange personal information via various different social media platforms. Whereas millennials and people and Gen Zs are much more comfortable. They're digital natives. They've, been, they've grown up in this world and they're much more comfortable exchanging information in the online spaces. And as a result, they tend to let their guard down more quickly. Whereas an older person might go, hang on a second, why are you asking me for that money? So even though there is this perception out there that older people are more vulnerable, younger people are extremely vulnerable to these kinds of scams. But the reality is anybody can be vulnerable if they're caught at the right or the wrong moment. The right moment for the criminal, the wrong moment for the person. And there was another story we had in the Irish Times recently, and it was just so desperately unfortunate. A woman had arrived over in Ireland from Turkey last Mm. August. She'd been working, uh, she'd been studying in Ireland and she'd been working in Ireland and she'd been saving all her money uh, so she could continue her postgraduate studies in Ireland and she'd managed to save two grand. Um, And then just before Christmas, she sent a letter to a friend of hers in Turkey. The letter never arrived and as a result, she started to get a bit confused as to where the letter might be. And then it just so happened that she got a text message purported to be from on post saying there was a problem with her delivery. So she linked... The, the, the letter that never arrived in Turkey with the text message that came from on post. So she followed the link, inputted her details, and within an hour, all her money was gone. Yeah. And if she hadn't had the interaction with on post, if she hadn't sent the letter, she would have got the message and said, well, I've had no interactions whatsoever with on post, so this is clearly a scam. Mm. But because she had had that interaction, she thought there were two things were linked, and as a result, she lost the money. Now, that's just an unfortunate coincidence, and it could have happened to anybody. Similarly, another big scam that's very popular now, I got four of them this week, was a message claiming to be from OnPost. And again, OnPost are, are not culpable in this in any way whatsoever, but claiming to be from OnPost, saying that there was 190 outstanding on a delivery that was, that was due to come my way. Now, if I was waiting for a delivery... I might have had pause to, pause to think and say, oh, that must be something that I need to do mm. to get my delivery. Now, it just so happens that I'm not waiting for any deliveries from on post. And also, I'm very familiar with this particular scam. So I did nothing and I just, I, I, I ignored it. But somebody somewhere is waiting for a delivery from yeah, on post. I, I, and that's, that's the way it works. Send out 10,000 messages. Five of them might land. But if you can get five victims from sending out 10,000 messages and, they, and you can get two grand from each of them, that's 10,000 euros for the criminals. And that's how this kind of money adds up. Yeah, I think somebody gave me a great piece of advice during the week when I was telling them about the one that I nearly fell for. And they said, look, the benchmark is this. Did you initiate something? And if you did, then check what that initiation was. Is there a website that people can go to to see what's real and what's not when, when they're getting, a, you know, a, some a, some online activity is, is, is approaching them? Well, you know, there, 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 are, there are quite a few. There's a website called Scam Advisor and that'll, you, you put in the URL of a particular website and you will, and that'll tell you whether or not that website looks legit to them. But I mean, I wouldn't even get to that point, right. Mandy. And I would say that the the, the 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 point is exactly as your friend told you that unless you phone the company, treat it with great suspicion. So if if there's any unsolicited contact from a company, that's when that's when you you should, you you should you should be on your guard. Yeah. And let's say you are expecting something from on post, or let's say you are expecting something from Bank of Ireland or AIB or Revolut or whoever it might be, and you get a message, don't respond to that message. Go on to the Bank of Ireland website or ring Bank of Ireland yourself and say, what's this about? But make the contact yourself directly with the bank or whoever 
rather than following any kind of link, so rather than doing as you're instructed to by the criminals, because the, rea- the reality is, it's very simple for people to, to, to be ripped off in this scenario. Absolutely. Well, Connor, there's lots of sound advice uh, in that, and I certainly learned a lot. Uh, but for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Connor Pope of the Irish Times. Connor, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Coming up, wind energy promises to be the holy grail when it comes to solving Ireland's energy security issues. But what are the challenges that lie ahead for an industry that's trying to build up its production in Ireland? Find out after this short break. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. Now, that was, of course, the very famous Bob Dylan anthem, Blowing in the Wind. And the government certainly hopes that their answers are to be found blowing in the wind because they're promising that Ireland is set to become the Saudi Arabia of wind exportation. But before they start doing that, we've got to capture it and we've got to start actually connecting it to the grid. There's a lot of work involved in that. So so here to tell us more about the industry itself and where that industry is going, I'm joined now by Lorcan Allen of the Sunday Business Post. Lorcan, you're very welcome. Thanks very much, Mandy. Now, just uh, to put all this in context and before we start talking about the mechanics of, of what's going on in the wind industry now, how many wind farms are there in Ireland? How many are there onshore and are there any offshore? Well, uh, interestingly, I suppose Ireland, you know, your listeners will know that there's a lot of wind farms around Ireland. If you take a drive from Dublin to Cork or Dublin to Limerick, you're going to see a lot of wind farms. Um, we have about close to 5,000 megawatts of installed capacity onshore in Ireland, um, which is among the best in Europe. Uh, We would have seen figures from last year that wind would have accounted for almost 40% of um, all the energy that was produced throughout the year. Uh, And that was during a year 2022, which was described as there was a wind drought during the summer. 40% of electricity, electricity, not energy. Yeah, Yeah. all electricity. Production last year was came from 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 our onshore wind. Uh, we have a really mature industry there; it works very well. Um, lots of developers, lots of finance, and and that's been the government's policy for the last twenty years. And you'd have to say, looking at it, it's been it's been quite successful. The government is looking at that and saying it's it's brought us a part of our way on our decarbonisation journey, but it's not brought us all the way. Um, we've work to do. Uh, and they see like where's the extra capacity? There's obviously only so much land in the country. Um, solar is becoming a big thing now for renewable, but it's again, that's only starting to take off. Um, the onshore wind is more mature. Where's the the next phase for 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 wind? It's offshore. It's around in our seas uh, off the coast. And why is that attractive? Well, one, the technology is now proven. It's coming online. I was in Scotland last year. I went out in the boat, 27 kilometers off the coast of Scotland to see a, a big wind farm that SSE are building out there. Fantastic engineering and, you know, incredible, the size, the scale of it. But it's offshore as well, which is great. I suppose it's not as impacting on, you know, on people's homes as maybe onshore and less of the, the problems with that. So the technology is proven. We have a huge sea area around Ireland, 10 times our landmass. So mm. we've got far more area that we can fill. And the good thing about onshore, offshore wind is that it's got higher load factors. So the wind blows more off sea than it does, uh, you know, on mm. land. Uh, and that's very attractive as a wind developer because the more the wind blows, the more money you make as a, you can generate as revenue. So so the government are now looking, you know, it's part of their, 
their, their climate targets, where are they going, how do we decarbonize different sectors? And to fully decarbonize energy, offshore is the big, big area that they want to push into, um, have a, a lot of developments there. And their target is for 2030 to have 5 gigawatts or 5,000 megawatts of installed offshore capacity uh, around the coast of Ireland. Right now, today, there's one offshore wind farm. It was installed back in 2004. It was actually the wor- world's first offshore wind farm. It's off um, British Bay. It, there's nine turbines, I think, um, and it's tiny. It's 25 megawatts. Uh, but the new technology that's there in the pipeline, it's enormous. And there's a major, major pipeline of projects. People want to invest in Ireland to see it as an attractive market um, that is coming down the tracks. Well, that all sounds exceptionally positive and promising and very optimistic. So what are the challenges that are there for this industry at the moment? Well, I suppose the challenges are you're trying to build a brand new industry from scratch. And offshore wind is different to onshore in that the supply chains and everything that goes with it is a bit more complex, as you can imagine. Um, You know, I mentioned I was in Scotland Scotland is way ahead of everybody else in the world. And the main reason is because they have the oil and gas industry. They were able to leverage that technology, the the supply chains they had there, basically the same kind of engineering concepts. And that allowed them to steal a march on the rest of the world, essentially. So Ireland doesn't have an offshore oil or gas industry, really, to speak of. So we've got to try and build, um, you know, that sort of supply chains. The good news is, I think there's an enormous economic opportunities from that. Coastal communities on the west and east and south coast of Ireland have potential to really benefit from offshore wind because these developers are going to need engineering. They're going to need all the things that feed into that. They're going to need people, really high quality jobs as well. Um, and, you know, from people bringing boats out to sea to, to maintenance these things from electrical components, there's an enormous economic opportunity here, but it is more complex. So as a government you're trying to attract in this supply chain and get these companies, international companies really are, it's key to say, I think that Irish companies cannot build these things on their own. We do not have the technology. We do not have the scale, really. You need, even our biggest energy companies here, ESB uh, is, has a partner for its offshore projects, Bordnamona, Energia, they all have international partners of massive scale that can come in and, and really throw their weight behind this and the technology. So, the government's job is to create a policy environment that is very, you know, conducive or attractive to those big international players. Because let's face it, Ireland is competing with not just the rest of Europe, but the rest of the world and offshore. You've like, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, every country in Europe is looking to diversify into renewables. Germany, France, Portugal, Spain are all looking at offshore wind. So there's, we're competing with those countries. Mm. But the USA is after bringing in this massive um, infrastructure act uh, and a lot of that is energy. And you've, you know, th- the heads of European companies are turning to the US and saying, wow, the US is now serious about offshore energy and also Vietnam, China again. So Ireland is competing for the attention of these big international companies. So that's why policy and getting our policy right is very important. Mm. So the potential is there. Um, we lack the legacy industry that they have in Scotland. Now, there was production here, obviously, in Kinsale and Cara, but there's not that kind of big presence uh, to, to kind of tap into. What about the the ports and the airports that you mentioned there? Um, would that require the government, in addition to getting a regulatory and policy framework going, a huge investment on their part to actually get them up to scratch, if you like, to, to start accepting this industry and facilitating uh, the types of vehicles and ships that are required for these huge turbines? Yeah, it, it's a key area, absolutely crucial area. And 
the Wind Industry Association would have put out a, a, a very detailed report on this last year about the ports, the situation in our ports. Um, and there's quite a lot of ports that are interested in in being able to facilitate offshore wind, but they don't have the infrastructure. Mm. Uh, there, currently, there's only one port in all of our, in the whole island of Ireland that has the ability to cater for offshore, and that's Belfast. Um, but if you look at Foynes, Dublin, Cork, Port, Ring of Skiddy, all them, they have ambition, but they're not ready. And I suppose to illustrate for your listeners, um, at the scale of these these turbines and the infrastructure that goes with them is is nothing like I've ever seen before. Mm. I mean, we've seen some of the big turbines that are on land, but these things are a different level altogether. And even the, they're called jackets, the towers that they stand on to go on the water or even for the floating offshore wind farms. Like it is hugely heavy engineering. Mm. And it needs a lot of space. And so the ports have a lot of work to do. I think they're talking billions needed to be invested. And most of the ports are owned by the state. The state has work to do there in that regard. So when you take all that into consideration and you look at the targets that the government have set um, and you see the investment and the scale of infrastructural uh, advancement that's required, are the targets realistic in terms of timing or what in your view is a realistic time frame for us to start seeing offshore wind farms at scale operating in the Irish landscape? Well, I, I think we will see them by the end of the decade. I absolutely do think we'll see that. There's there's six projects, they're called phase one projects that are more advanced uh, offshore pro- and most of them are on the East Coast where it's a shallower seabed, it's less complicated um, but the West do. Coast probably then is where the more potential is, I guess. Correct, yeah, because there's more wind, as anyone who lives in that part of the country will know. it's uh, There's more potential out there, but it's more complex. And there's a very deep seabed there, so the answer is actually floating mm. wind turbines, which are, it's still a coming technology. It's not quite there yet. Um, whereas fixed bottom, as it's known, where they're actually, the, the turbine is fixed to the, the seabed, that's already proven. So that's why a lot of these phase one projects are focused on the East Coast, off the coast of Dublin, uh, Wexford, uh, done uh, loud, um, and there's there's some very big projects there. Between them, the government thinks that these these projects that are there could probably deliver about two and a half gigawatts of um, energy, which is a lot. Mm. That's half the country's demand from just a handful of projects. Um, these are going to be very big pieces of infrastructure. Some and of you're going proje- to see them from shore, I guess. You will, yeah. They're about 12 kilometres off the shore. You will see them, yeah. So there might be a big difference from locating these all along the wild Atlantic Way and putting them on the East Coast. Who knows the resistance that, you know, local communities might start registering. Yeah, correct. I think a lot of the wind companies have already started that process of engaging with communities to let them know what this is going to look like, um, that there there are going to be turbines on the horizon in the future. So those those projects, those six projects are pretty advanced. They and would have got, they're called maritime area consents. They've got them. That's basically given them the rights to the seabed. They're currently, uh, next month, they will be going into... Um, uh, what the, what's called as the ORES. It's the Offshore Renewable Energy Auction, essentially, where the government is going to offer these kind of guaranteed contracts for to give them price certainty. Um, and once they have that, they will go looking for planning permission. And, and some of them have already se- are seeking planning permission already. So, you know, th- those projects should start to, you should, we should start to see work on those by the middle of the decade and all going well we may see them completed and energised and connected to the power grid by 2030. 
But those are still only halfway towards our target. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Lorcan Allen of the Sunday Business Post. Lorcan, you wrote recently about a government U-turn. You said that might put 80% of those offshore wind projects at risk. What's that all about? Yeah, so this is um, quite an interesting time, I think, for the industry. The last three weeks have caused a lot of tension in the the wind industry, certainly because of the policy change that the government has announced. So all along, the government said that, you know, offshore wind, it's a new industry. We're trying to build it from scratch. We're going to allow the first kind of wave of projects to be developer-led. And that's where the developer of the project would literally go stick a flag in the sea and say, this is where I'm going to build mine, and then try and build it from there. Uh, and the government, I, I've been at many conferences where state officials have said that's correct. And then after 2030, we will transition to what's called a plan-led system where the government will sort of mark out areas, so almost like development zones in the city for planning and say, we want wind farms to be built in this area of the sea. And then companies will compete to, to bid into that that area. See, that's currently where Scotland is at the minute. They're a very mature wind, offshore wind industry. The... Irish one, we're starting from scratch. So it's seen as a natural evolution. You start with developer-led and then you transition to plan-led. However, this all was flipped on its head recently. Uh, Wind Energy Ireland had a conference and an official from the Department of Energy and Climate Change stood up at at this conference and said, we're actually accelerating our move to plan-led and we're going to be starting all phase two projects, which are projects between now and 2030, will fall under this this plan-led system. And I have to say, Speaking to my contacts in the industry, this has caused an awful lot of disquiet. Right. Now, why would the government do that? What, you know, what, what would the rationale from for, for, for them be moving to that phase so quickly be? Is it because of lack of resources? Do they want to confine development? What, in your view or in the industry's view, is, is causing this change? Yeah, I think there's a lot of pros to the plan led. Um, obviously, you, you know what areas you want it to be built in. It allows you to focus your infrastructure developments into one area. Um, it allows you to do more kind of environmental impact assessments on one area and know what impact it's going to have have. Um, but that was never part of the plan. They always said it would be after 2030 they would go to plan-led. Uh, I think the reason that they've accelerated this is because they've looked at the number of projects that are coming down. So to give context, there's 50 offshore projects coming down the tracks with 80,000 potential megawatts. Not all of those were ever going to be built, but that's the pipeline. And I think the government looked at this and said, we do not have the resources to process all of that. They also probably looked at it and went, we don't have the grid capacity to handle that volume of electricity coming from offshore wind. And I think what you're seeing here is the state's lack of resources is kind of hampering the industry pipeline in in many ways. And what do you think that might do to investors? I think it spooked them. And I I think it already has. Um, I'm hearing a lot of nervousness from Irish companies that have international partners. Um, You know, Ireland is now seen as a risky market. We talked earlier about For the how wind energy sector, do you for mean? The, for offshore wind, yeah. Right, it seems yeah. very risky. Um, and we talked earlier about how every Irish company needs an international partner uh, and those international companies, they're getting offers from everywhere else and they're looking at Ireland and, and the, you know, policy changes and they're saying, is this really worth it? You know, there's a lot of money that we could sink in this and time and resources. We could just go elsewhere where we've got more certainty. Um so that's that's certainly there's certainly a lot of nervousness out there. I, I'm picking up on at the moment because, you know, this is not 
it's been signaled for so long that we were moving to plan led after 2030 and now for the sudden change mm. I think I think um, a lot of people in the industry are worried you just finally to close out on this then Lorcan if I can what would this do um, to our energy security vulnerability because this was the great white hope for us and how we'd sort of get energy independence yeah I mean uh, to go back to the 2030 target the government is looking at 5 gigawatts of installed offshore wind I don't think we're going to hit that now uh, we don't have a prayer to hit that as far as I can see because it takes 10 years to build these projects and some of them are being changed there now I mean, we, you, you mentioned in your opening that Ireland could be the Saudi Arabia of wind. We've heard that anecdote many times, which would ins- imply that we're exporting uh, energy. A lot of people are saying to me in the industry that we'll actually be importing energy from offshore wind energy from France via the interconnector because our industry will not be up and running in time over the next decade. So, look, offshore is still a fantastic opportunity. We just need to make sure we get our policy right and, and you know, keep these international players attracted to the Irish market because without them, these projects aren't going to be built. Absolutely. And as you say, investors just want certainty. Really, that's what they're out there looking for. Um, Lorcan, thank you very much for coming in to us today. Really appreciate it. That was Lorcan Allen of the Sunday Business Post. Thank you very much. You're listening to Taking Stock on News Talk with me, Mandy Johnston. And after the break, what's happening in the world of online advertising as companies like Meta continue to shed jobs? We look at the revenue raising side of the business. Join me after the break. Welcome back to News Talk's Taking Stock. This is Mandy Johnston. Now, the company Meta, like many multimedia platforms, are clearly trying to find their happy post-COVID balance. This week we saw more job losses and on the revenue side there are things changing as well with their new advertising policies causing some marketeers to think twice about their partnership. To discuss all of this I'm joined now by Steve Dempsey who is Product Director at Media House Ireland and columnist and commentator for the Irish and Sunday Independent. Steve you're very welcome. Thanks very much, Mandy. Now, Steve, there's lots of issues facing this company at the moment. We saw those job losses this week. What's your assessment of what's happening in, in Facebook and Meta? Do you think we've reached the end of the redundancies? Have they have they kind of come to terms with and, and found their ha- happy balance? It's pretty unclear at the moment. Um, I feel that there's still a bit more adjustment, in, certainly in some tech companies. Um, whether I'm, I'm not entirely sure how that applies to Meta, which has done a pretty good job. Um, to date, um, it's announced it's, they're calling it the year of efficiency. They seem to be pulling back from their kind of strange, uh, hallucinating approach to the metaverse. Uh, and and that they're doubling down on some smart things, like they're really good advertising products that they've had to date. And smart new revenue streams, incremental revenue streams, like a kind of a subscription service. So I think Facebook is in a very good position compared to a lot of the other competitors in the term, not always competitors, but other companies that it's grouped together with in the tech, tech sector. Mm. Now, last year, as you say, Metaverse was huge in the sort of narrative of, of Meta in particular. And um, this year, it's now all about AI. And uh, we were looking uh, about at some of the new regulations that were brought in by Apple uh, in 2019, which have affected some of uh, Facebook's advertising policies. Can you just tell us, first of all, what those Apple regulations were and how did they affect the Facebook uh, advertising stream? 
Well, Apple has always prided itself, or certainly for the last few years, prided itself on privacy as a, one of the main selling points, aside, aside from the kind of slightly slicker handsets that you get if you go at Android, one of the real USBs was privacy. So it, everyone has seen those uh, these new notices that pop up when you uh, download a new app and you get this thing saying, ask app not to track or allow it to track. And this effectively is Apple closing off the ability for apps to track um, users as they move through the web in slightly different other places. So they're basically saying, you know, if, if someone's running an app or a service, they need to kind of stay within their own walled garden. They can't do egregious things uh, like, you know, track their behavior in, in other websites and then triangulate and cross-reference, which Facebook was one of the main companies that did at the time, or Meta as it is now. It, it, it was, uh, it's been accused of um, creating things like shadow profiles, which would mean you know, you may not be a subscriber to Facebook or a user of Facebook service, but it would be keeping tabs on you so that when the, when you did eventually uh, succumb and um, open uh, and log in and, and, and start using the service, it kind of had an idea of who you were. Mm. Um, so app, uh, Apple, in I mean, in, in some ways, it's, it's a wonderful PR move and a very smart business move for Apple. It's basically, you know, corralling people and saying you're more private it becomes slightly more cynical when you realize that Apple now has aims for its own major advertising business. So it's basically, you know, it, so a lot of people are seeing the Apple's approach to tracking. They're cutting other businesses off at the knees and they intend to swoop in there themselves and make hay while, where no one else can actually get to, which is those, you know, Apple users who are normally slightly more higher net wealth individuals. Mm, yeah, so it's all beginning to make sense now. But it did have an effect for Facebook or Meta, as it's known now, uh, in relation to how they use our data. So what was their solution to this problem? Well, I mean, I think Meta's doing a lot of things as a solution to this problem. I mentioned earlier the subscription service that it's um, starting up. And I think Meta, like, we've seen something like this being tried with Twitter at the moment, um, Twitter Blue, and it's more high profile because it's, everything in Twitter seems to be like a little bit of a dumpster fire at the moment. Mm. And Facebook will probably do a subscription service and do it quite well. And there is more of a, a requirement or, or a need out there for people to have a subscription service with Facebook because there are so many people who have built legitimate businesses on meta platforms. So there's people who, who sell on Facebook and on Instagram. There's people who kind of, you know, you find local trades people a lot on Facebook. Um, uh, so I think Facebook will, will monetize a subscriptions business very smartly, um, unlike Twitter, but it, again, it has its hooks into users in a way that Twitter doesn't. Um, one of the other things that Facebook recently announced is a new kind of AI-supported approach to um, to creating and running advertising campaigns. And again, this is, I mean, AI obviously is kind of tech's biggest fad, and we know that Facebook has announced this kind of year of efficiency. Um, so they are doubling down on AI in the hope of getting more advertising um, promising greater effective advertising to uh, to its advertisers, but probably making life slightly more easy for itself at the same time. Mm. And as a result of um, this AI, what it's hoping to achieve is, is more bespoke and targeted advertising directed towards the individuals. But I understand that that's making marketeers a bit nervous. Why would they be nervous about that? <laughs> Well, look, I, I, all of, almost all of Facebook's problems come down to a problem of trust. So I think, you know, Facebook has proved itself to be a really commercially effective company with a trust issue. Um, but I mean, to, to really understand what's going on, I think to, you need, we need to understand the context of 
what their advertising product has been to date. And honestly, I think Meta doesn't get a good, an, enough credit for how good this advertising product is. I mean, it, this they, they made $113 billion last mm, year. Mm. Um, and so, you know, the, the money doesn't lie. I mean, what they've got is the, a huge trove of data points that can be used to target audiences. So you can like, target different users or, or people. If you're trying to market a particular product, you can target people based on their interests, their locations, their relationship, anything that we would typically put into Facebook as part of our um, setting up an account or keeping an account live. They also can create lookalike audiences so they can see people who seem to be similar to the people you want to target and assume that those would also be potential targets. It also created a really a really powerful self-serve interface for advertisers where you could upload a load of um, creative like uh, ad campaigns mm. and then test them, run A-B testing on the ads so you can get the right ad for the right people at the right time, Yeah, and which, you know, was a very powerful thing to do. And the final thing, which is in some ways the most powerful thing, just like Facebook kind of created proxy metrics for making us all feel good, like the likes, uh, it created proxy metrics for success in advertising as well. So people would like ads and would like their pages and I mean, I'm old enough to remember I used to work in digital PR when we'd be going to clients and they'd be quite happy with like a few thousand likes on the back of an ad campaign. And they assumed that sales would follow. So again, this the, the, the assumption that the Facebook, uh, you know, a win on Facebook is just likes doesn't follow through. That's not a, a, a real kind of business win mm. in any way, shape or form. So in this way what facebook has now decided is that they're they've invested heavily in applying machine learning to this process so they've got a new product it's called advantage plus and it uses artificial intelligence to automatically generate multiple adverts for a marketer uh, according to the specific uh, objectives that they have so whether they want to you know sell products win new customers um, so the machine learning will target users and generate the creative so effectively you, you you go to Facebook, you give them money and you say, I, I want to do this with my brand and they do everything. Yeah. So, I, so they're cutting out a lot of middlemen. I have to say, I looked at that Advantage Plus and as somebody who's worked an awful lot on the other side of things, creating campaigns for people, it seems to me that you have a great opportunity to, to kind of test things. It could be the world's largest focus group and it, it, it actually, you know, actually creates content for you. But I guess people are, are worried about control uh, at the end of the day and we'll come back to, to that in a second but if you're just tuning in you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me Mandy Johnston and I'm speaking to Steve Dempsey who's Product Director at Media House Ireland and columnist and commentator for the Irish and Sunday Independent. Just to come back to that issue of control um, because I guess you put all your information in your collateral and your content as a business um, there has to be some regulatory rules that you stick to and advertising standards that you have to adhere to. So so maybe that's where the, the nervousness comes into to marketeers or to advertising agencies. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think and I, we said it earlier, I mean Facebook's problem is always one of trust. It has a really strong advertising product, but it also has a history of like second order consequences. Um, that are hugely negative, you know, on one way, you could say Facebook is a brilliant platform for, for free speech and bringing people together. And another, you could see it as a as a platform for insurrection. So really, the question for marketers is, are they comfortable with the level of risk that's involved with, with giving over so much of the creative process of representing your brand on Facebook? Mm. Can Facebook guarantee brand safety? I mean, what if a particular brand were accused of racism because the AI generated ads were targeting just 
a particular ethnic minority. So I think Facebook really needs to ensure that there are guardrails around this and they need to show, which they haven't always shown, but in some instances they have, a better understanding of some of the the, 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 the concerns that marketers and advertisers um, would have around how their campaigns are created and how their campaigns are shown to users. Hmm. But also, like again, it is, it's a question of do you trust for a, Facebook's AI to do the job that agency copywriters and art directors currently do, and um, which is a big ask. Yeah, and speaking of AI and trust, um, and you mentioned earlier, it's, it's absolutely right, AI is the buzzword of 2023. Maybe for consumers, probably not for these tech industry people who I guess have been using AI for aeons to, to mix the metaphors here. You've been writing recently about um, um, artificial intelligence and the search engines um, and the maybe AI wars that are happening over those search engines. Could you talk us through that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it is a very faddish space and it feels like a lot of technology companies and others are, are kind of really, you know, jostling each other to get into the limelight here. And the most prominent example was um, Microsoft. And Microsoft's Bing was the kind of first out of the traps with a kind of a chat GPT powered um, search uh, kind of search bot. Um, so instead of when you put in, like when you're Googling, like where do I go on my holidays? Uh, and it, Google, we were all used to this way that Google returns a list of kind of blue links with a few ads in there. And this interface kind of, you know, you'd say, I, here's what I'm interested in. It would say, well, a good place for you to go would be, and it would give you a kind of a list, but it's a far more kind of conversational so, um, so it's output. A, is it more like the conversations we might have with um, an online banking provider or an electricity provider on the right-hand margin of your of your yes. yeah, account? Okay. It's very similar, but where it differs is that it's just, it's so much more powerful. Mm. So you can, you, know, you could choose a link to the longest, most complicated, um, most detailed article on, I don't know, let's, uh, something in some, some sort of, let's say, incredible term like macroeconomic trends or something and ask them to summarize it for a three-year-old. And it would do a good job of it. Mm. Um, so it, it doesn't just return results. It also performs some kind of operational that, operations that approximate kind of, you know, talking to a real person. So it is, it's a really powerful interface and people are doing all sorts of interesting things playing with it, with this interface. Um, and Microsoft has suddenly become cool again, which, which I think is strange. And very few people would say that that would have been the case. And Google, in its kind of rush to, to catch up, has display, put, put forward a, um, uh, an example of its own um, chat interface called BARD, where it got some kind of astronomical facts incorrect and it cost Google, I think, something like 100 million in its uh, share price. So, you know, th there's a price for kind of trying to edge people into the limit. There's a risk for these big companies as well, because this is all kind of live testing. Yeah. For me, if, if we relate it back to the conversation we just had about Facebook and, and how this is all going to be monetized, the fact that you no longer get a list from these sort of chatbots, you get a kind of a more discursive response as if you were talking to like a an online kind of banking chatbot. The, the, the UI has to come different. So we're all used to a list of links. If it's if it's a conversational kind of thing, how do you get the ads in there? Mm. Um, how do you how do we monetize this sort of new way of, of 
talking to chatbots. Maybe the ads have to be inserted between different search queries, different actually questions. When you ask for where am I going on holiday, and it says, actually, I don't want to go somewhere that hot, somewhere between each query where you refine where you're going in terms of how you interact with this thing is where the ad's going. But we haven't seen any examples of how that would work yet. Um, it could be the case, I suppose, that the ad will actually be the prompt itself so that effectively the SEO or search engine optimization is is where you actually get, you know, you 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 get a, a product listed first as your first order of choice instead of getting a list of options. But I'm I'm getting way down into the weeds now myself on this, Steve. Um, just you could f- make a lot of money if you come up with a good idea, Randy. <laughs> you never know. Just to close this off, I wanted to to pick up on two points that have been. I suppose, a theme and a thread through everything you've said today. One is trust and it, and it does come down to trust. What do we trust on Meta, Facebook and AI and obviously cost? Because as you mentioned there, the stumble by um, Alphabet on Bard's response was was very costly for them. And we saw that Meta was fined almost 400 million uh, by the, the privacy watchdog, which is based here in Ireland in just January. And um, are they making any head, headway into kind of becoming more trusted or do we still have that healthy scepticism when it comes to meta in relation to um, our online lives and we're not quite ready to immerse ourselves in the metaverse yet? So to, to, uh, just to answer the question about trust, and I think there's a point to make about creativity as well. But first on trust, I think there's a slight duplicity mm. in terms of our dialogue and certainly in the media when you hear people talking about trust in Facebook. Millions of people across the world log into Facebook every few minutes. Millions of people are making money on Facebook. Facebook is a trusted platform for commerce and for daily use. And there are obviously, there are huge questions um, for the the company to answer, um, albeit in a slightly wonkish way. But I think there, I think there is general trust because there's habitual use and that has to, that has to come from trust. Um, there, it may be habitual use but with an awareness that maybe I should be slightly wary of this, but the slight wariness is very different from kind of trust altogether. So I actually think that people, we, we have outsourced so much of our lives and so much of our working lives to technology that I, I do think there's probably more implicit trust than we let on when we're talking about these things. Yeah, we can For talk. Me, the, yeah, so, sorry, for me, the biggest issue is around cr- creativity and how much we're willing to automate creativity, especially when it comes to certain like something like marketing or advertising. And, you know, I, I'd have questions about whether there could be consistent brand tone of voice on some platforms. If some if some advertising is automated and some advertising is done uh, old school, like by real creative people, how do you ensure consistency? And I don't, I can't envisage a, a world where AI will ever suggest an ad where Nick came and takes his kid off in a laundrette. Uh, I can't see AI suggesting a man with an eye patch sells shirts like Ogilvy did. I can't see AI ever suggesting gorillas playing drums to flog chocolate bars like Fallon's did. So I think great ads are unexpected and yet culturally relevant. And the advertising really has hollowed out some of the creative excellence in advertising. Um, interesting, one of the best use cases I saw of AI related to marketing was I think it was on someone on Twitter said they put in a brief into ChatGPT and whatever ChatGPT spits out as an output, they discount that from their uh, creative directions that they're going to take to their clients. So I think there are there are some uh, alternative ways of using um, ChatGPT to still be creative and still be effective marketers. Absolutely. I'm afraid uh, myself and many of our listeners are probably stuck in that laundromat again now with Nick Heyman. But for now, that was <laughs> Steve Dempsey, Product Director uh, at Media House Ireland, columnist and commentator for the Irish and Sunday Independent. Steve, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Mandy.
Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Next week, Euromania as tickets for the upcoming Eurovision in Liverpool sell out in just 30 minutes. We'll be asking what are the economic values of bringing Eurovision to your city. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks, as always, to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo De Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof, and then it's Gavin Riley with On the Record. So, from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.